Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 393. And this week I'm joined by Kalechi Okafar. Man, I was excited to talk to Kalechi. You're going to love this one. This is one of the best chats I've had. And we get straight in as well. So I'm going to keep this intro quite brief. Um, I've been a fan of Kalechi for a minute as a, uh, a podcaster with her Say Your Mind podcast. And just as her kind of social commentary, I get a lot of it via social media. It's often clips of her appearances on TV shows or radio shows or articles or interviews. Her TED Talk is fantastic and well worth your time. I think that was TEDx Sheffield, I think. I may have made that up, but um, yeah, easy to find. Yeah, I think she's wonderful. So I was, we've only ch- chatted in person once before. It's when me and Adam Richardson had her on the Pod Bible podcast, and that was a while back. So yeah, it was good to sit down and have a bit of a chat. And we get we cover a lot. I won't say I was about to start saying what we cover, but just listen. I'll just stop talking. Um, as ever, this week's podcast is brought to you by SpeechDevelopmentRecords.com. That is my record label, my merch store, everything. Just head to SpeechDevelopmentRecords.com and you can buy. Sunglasses, umbrellas, jumpers, vests, swimsuits, hoodies. You can literally get everything and stuff like music (laughs) and DVDs and stuff that I've actually spent, you know, a good deal of my life creating. Or you can also support patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip. I'm going to keep that one brief today. You know what a patron is. Head there if you want to be involved. Yeah, let's get on with the podcast. Oh, actually... Before we get going, if this is your first time tuning in, check the back catalogue out. In this episode, I think we mentioned the chat with Kano. I had um, the chat with Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper, which was on a, a, a defund the police special where I spoke to to Adam and other experts about about that whole 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 movement. Other previous guests, I mentioned Kano. I've had Getz. I've had Dizzy. I've had Wretch. Roots Maneuver, Mike Skinner, Killer Mike, just loads of good people. Leader of, of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Coulours, who, um, I don't know, is going through some interesting things at the moment. There's a lot of accusations being cast in her direction. I'm looking at if I can talk to some people on on the other side of that, because I like to be unbiased, even if it's previous guests. Yeah. Loads of good people to get your teeth into and enjoy. But for now, this is episode, what is it? Did I say 393 or 394? 393 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Kalechi Okafor. Right, I'm here today with Kalechi Okafor. How are you? I'm good. Nice to be here, Pip. Nice to be here. It's good to have you here. Um, I, I, I've made a note of all your of all your titles: um, actor, director, <laughs> dance innovator, an essential one, a social commentator. <laughs> Dickhead in recovery is my my yeah. favourite because that's. <laughs> I feel that's the most important for us all to accept and admit, um, and podcaster. So, yeah, yes. you do a lot of things. I'm pleased to, to have you here to have a chat. 
Yeah, lots of things. But like you say, yeah, Dickhead in Recovery is my favourite. Yeah, in the same vein as Baby Girl. But yeah, yeah. Dickhead in Recovery, most definitely. Because it's, I guess life is just a process, isn't it? And I feel like people don't want to admit that they don't know things or that they thought that they knew things and had to unlearn things. When actually, I think that that's the beauty of life. So yeah. being able to say you're a dickhead in recovery, I think is refreshing and liberating. I completely agree. And it's genuinely, it sounds silly and throwaway, but I feel there's such a deepness there, like genuinely, because again, particularly in this social media world where people are so reluctant to accept education, to accept yeah. criticism, to accept that they're wrong. Um, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure, sure we'll talk about it, but the ever heating up topic of race it's essential to accept that you're a dickhead in recovery particularly as a white person because you (laughs) I I, I will have grown up in the area of Essex I mean I will have grown up even though I've got a lovely welcoming family I will have grown Mm. up around certain institutions of racism certain benefits of racism and things like that so if I get all defensive and go nah no no I'm not I'm I'm, I'm all right then it doesn't help anything it doesn't doesn't help you progress so yeah no yeah and i think that that's the thing isn't it especially when we when we look at it uh, when we're talking about race when we're looking at um you know gender sexuality there are so many things that all of us at some point need to really focus on disabilities like learning differences there are so many things that if we are truly like really about living if we're truly truly about living and living is about connection then that means that there are some things that we're going to have to like look at or a lot of things that we're going to have to look at and be like well in order for me to connect and thus live I'm going to have to address this wildness over here as to my line of thinking and so when you now see like governments across like the US and the UK are now turning around going oh well we don't need to study critical race theory it shouldn't be a thing because you're making all the children feel bad you're making white children feel bad and it's like well no they're not going would you rather that they feel bad at this stage like wow I didn't know that all of this was done in my name or do you want them to do that later on when they're adults and they've built so much of their personhood on these um, fallacies and myths about what it means to be white and what it means to be non-white. So, uh, yeah, I just feel like that's why my platform has been so instrumental, I guess, to me being a dickhead in recovery, because there are things that I've had to unlearn and there are things that I've, you know, had to teach other people simply by living and simply by sharing my sharing my opinions. But, yeah, it's, all, it's a long process. It's bloody long. Un- unlearning is the key part there and it's it's a fascinating one when you talk about how we're taught history in the UK and it seems like a you know the whole argument of if you bring Hitler or Nazis in you've lost the argument um, mm-hmm. but but in Germany they're taught about Hitler and the Nazis and they're taught mm-hmm. the 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 darkness of their past in the mm-hmm. UK rule Britannia Britannia mm-hmm. rules mm-hmm. the white and all this kind of thing and we're not we're not talking about and discussing or taught at a young age what that actually meant and the blood that all of that was built on. We talk about the the, the triumphs and the great things. Mm-hmm. And again, there is a lot that Britain did do to progress the whole yeah. w- world, all mm-hmm. societies, but mm-hmm. they did that at the cost of lives and blood yeah. and cultures and all of that kind of thing. And you've got to teach all of it. You've got to address all of it. Otherwise, you are having that thing, as I said, where you get defensive when you're older or you're or you're just finding out i've had loads of that where i'm like oh shit is that what is that what that means or is that what the yeah. words are in that song or whatever is that yeah. is that what that's actually referencing that's mad you yeah know? this is the thing though when we get into that state 
a lot of us are shamed for not knowing right and i try to be careful of, about that like you don't want to shame people for not knowing if if now you like you've let them know that or you didn't know that thing and they want to be wrong and strong then we'll have a problem but prior to that there are a lot of things that we were intentionally like not taught in school for a reason because again it helps us to kind of keep this very um nationalist kind of mindset like oh you know great britain why don't we talk about what what that great means what what does it mean to say Great Britain. In fact, even Britain, what we call the United Kingdom, even on this very island, the colonisation that had to happen and the um, oppression that had to happen in order for these nations to be amalgamated, to be called this, and the languages that they lost in the process. We don't have to, before we even go and start looking at the continent of Africa, we start looking at East South Asia, let's just look at Britain in and of itself. What violences were committed in the way, in, in, in the name of all of us being one, you know, some people are having to retrace what their their national language is on this island. Yeah, yeah. And 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 to me, that's mad. You know, so it's it's one thing to, you know, look further afield, but even within the United Kingdom, how united really are we? Because people are still vexed. They're still vexed about their very recent history. Um, and I think that that those are the things that we should consider that it, the things that we think only affect other people actually affect us as well. Yeah. And it's it's a, f- a fascinating one because language can be so easy to overlook for the British because yeah. everyone in the world speaks English. So you can kind of go, yeah. oh, it's not that important. But what you don't realise is many of those languages were pre written history or yeah. pre the at least a large amount of written history so in the loss of those languages you're losing those stories and those tales yeah. and that means history is erased through yeah. the changing of languages and through the losing of languages so it's hugely important but i mean I'll, we're jumping straight into it i should I, I shouldn't have expected anything <laughs> less it's what I, I, lo- I love about you as a voice but before we get into it just how are you how, like how are you at the moment how's your year been you you're a first time parent in an already mad year. So yeah. before we get more into all these, these big discussions, how are you as a, as a person? Are you good? I'm, I feel like I'm okay. You know, I feel like I'm okay. Some days I feel great. And some days I'm just like, what is this? I hate it here. Um, <laughs> and I think that that duality is welcome. Then it should be, you know, normalized really, yeah. but it's, it's a lot. It's a lot having your whole perspective shift um, in a pandemic. So my son's going to be like 21 months now or is 21 months now. And I'm just considering like all of these things. What do I do as a parent? You know, what am I, what legacies am I leaving? That sort of thing. My day to day is obviously really, really busy. I had to get him started at nursery because I have so much work to do in the daytime, juggling him, like looking after, not literally juggling him because that would be unsafe, but you know, like (laughs) literally like trying to look after him and doing all of the things that I need to do as well as like doing um, panel discussions via Zoom and all of those things. It was really starting to get to me, even something like breastfeeding that obviously we don't speak enough about in terms of like the mainstream narrative. That's in like that's exhausting in and of itself. Mm. So to be feeling physically depleted and mentally depleted from having or you know stretched to do all of these things there was a point where I had to just call my energy back to me so we stopped breastfeeding got him into nursery and so then I had my days to be able to kind of do the work that I enjoy doing and to just have more space in my mind to be able to do those things but it's been it's been a lot it's been a lot I mean I'm an introvert really so in terms of 
not being around other people physically that didn't get to me too much obviously I guess I don't live alone I've got my partner and I've got my son but um you know I did think about that that what what did this time then afford me and what it afforded me was a chance to kind of look at how wild my life was not even necessarily just prior to having my son but just like my working habits you get so used to working yourself to the ground Hmm. working yourself into burnout that is glamorized to you in society like rise and grind this is what we do we've got a hustle we've got a hustle and in that silence remember like March lockdown when everything was just silent that's when I really thought to myself like wow so I didn't even need to be going at the pace that I was going at why was I doing that it's it's, so, yeah. it's, it's mad how much the the message of rap coincides with the message of the Tories <laughs> like you wouldn't have thought this you wouldn't have thought this but it's all work harder than everyone else get your yeah. money do this rise above when or, you die yeah sleep <laughs> when you die oh, exactly and i had i had a guy called rutger bregman on here a while ago mm-hmm. and he broke through to me man but because i was exactly that my thing was always look i'm i live in a small town in essex i've not got these big connections or whatever my thought was always mm. but i can outwork anyone do you know what I mean? I can. I, mm-hmm. I may not have the money. I may not have this, but I can put in in the time. And there's people that I've made lifelong connections with because we were the ones answering emails in December. And in yeah, the music yeah, industry, yeah. that just yeah. like it shuts down in December. So, mm-hmm. and that was always my outlook. And talking to Rutger and talking to my brother, who's also a big believer in this, is saying mm-hmm. that there was a switch when we made everything about work. And I think we've seen it a lot in the pan- pandemic. You know, people have been. Yeah when their work is taken away, they don't know who they are or they're working yeah. harder than they, they were because they feel that's their identity and it's so yeah. important to allow yourself to know who you are. And again, th- that must have been a weird one for you because the pandemic did that to a lot of people, but parenthood does that to a lot of people as well. They're, yes. they're two things that make people have at least a period of maybe forgetting who they are because suddenly you're mum or, or suddenly yeah. you're, you're this or that. So, yeah, I guess you got really b- busy, though, in the pandemic because of yes. what happened at the start or partly because of what happened at the well, start yes, of it yes. with George Floyd and the, the huge uprising and, and, and support and activism. How have you felt watching all of that, I guess I want to ask? Because, again, one of the reasons I like you, and I'm going to, talk about you being on more mainstream media because they're scared of you man but, um, <laughs> w- w- one of the reasons they're scared of you is you like me you know I want peaceful resolution to all yes. problems but yes. I don't believe that that's the only s- solution Definitely. or that it will always work and history yeah. w- will show that in the extremes violence has had to be used in yes. other in yes. other the, the, in others there's strikes and and, and, yeah. and lobbies and all these different things but th- there's a lot of different things that bring change so how have you felt kind of seeing the rise of activism while we're all locked in our houses if you know what i mean so it is more just digital activism yeah for for some you know, obviously for quite a lot of people it was digital activism but why i really like disobedience because i always think about the fact that for me for me like you mentioned parenthood I don't want my son to just listen to me because I've been positioned in this hierarchical structure as the the authority I want him to listen to me because he trusts that what I'm suggesting to him is what I believe is best for him when we take that same narrative and apply it to the government 
I shouldn't just have to listen to you because you were, you know, you're in a position of authority, but we claim that it's because we elected them into these positions. That's why we have to listen. And that's why we have to do, you know, X, Y, Z. And I just think to myself that what the pandemic showed people is that anger is a useful emotion. It's a useful um, emotion to have is what you do with the anger because if you let it calcify then you've just got resentments and you've just got all of this infighting and you've just got stagnation but you take the anger and you move with it you use it as momentum people were out in the streets and they were protesting all around the world I saw that and I said so it's possible so it's possible to do this so this slumber that everybody had been kind of socialized into they can be awakened from it mm. and that's why it's sad that words have been co-opted like woke and things like that but obviously that is done with intention when you take a, these words and you strip them of their inherent meaning it's so as to take away the power that they have from being able to um, emancipate and liberate marginalized communities so when you take a word like woke you mess it up so it doesn't even make any sense to anybody anymore nobody wants to use it everyone wants to get far away from it you're missing the point the point is the fact that we as um, a society that's operating under white supremacist patriarchy we are in a deep slumber we are letting things happen to us and around us that actually if we were more conscious of it we wouldn't allow that like we wouldn't want that for mm. either ourselves or our fellow person yeah. so I'm looking at that and I'm looking at everybody marching and I'm like right so people can wake up from this but it shouldn't take a black person being killed for us to wake up from this like and it's not the first black person to be killed either so those are the kind of things that were kind of like on my mind about it I saw that and I was proud um my first video um that went viral I think it was chat shit get banged when I was talking about um violence not being the answer people always talking about um violence not being the answer the government telling you that um protesting looting whatever the hell that's not the answer but when we apply the history to this statement that you're making it doesn't marry it doesn't make sense because violence is how you acquired everything when we're mm. looking at the um, empire states uh, whether we're looking at like france or um, portugal italy britain um america everything you lot acquired you acquired out of violence so then you can't turn to the everyday person and say no you can't use violence yeah. Even though we use the violence to get all of these things. And I'm not necessarily saying like, yeah, everyone, let's go out and be violent. But I'm definitely saying that they can't tell us one thing and then be doing another. Yeah. And it's 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 a mad one. I had I had a song out years ago called Stake a Claim and it gets used a lot at protests and stuff. And mm -hmm. the only reason it took on was because that song, I kind of talk about the fact that the government works for for us yes like they're our employees and it's a mad one that we like you said oh we voted them in there therefore we have to do what they say it's like so that's how we gave them a job therefore we have to do what they say <laughs> that's so backwards it's like no that's not yeah. how it works and i also feel completely agree on on the protest and 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 civil disobedience front yeah we've got it so twisted in the uk and i think it's because our history is of conquering rather than yeah so so being a powerful nation rather than you look at france who has a history yeah. of revolution and uh, uh, when their lorry drivers strike they block the ports they block everything yes. it costs yeah. millions and millions when like i always love the story when they tried to bring in clamping on vehicles mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the public weren't into it so just as as a, as a nation they all went around and whenever they they saw a clamp they put glue in it which meant it couldn't be unlocked <laughs> so they had to be cut off yeah. and 
they got rid of clamping because they were like, right, this ain't going to work. We can't. Yeah. We're, we can't have this. And we got into a really weird, comfortable position in the UK where we were told, right, you're not happy about something. No, I'm not. Okay, well, mm. have you filled out an application to complain about it? No, I haven't yet. Uh, well, if you fill this application out, yeah. okay, well, we wanted to complain here. No, 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 you have to complain in this bit, otherwise yeah. it will get in our way. The point of protest is to disrupt. It's not... Yes. We saw with the however million it was that marched against the Iraq war that when it's all sanctioned and doesn't cause any trouble, yeah. it can be ignored. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do about it? If, if millions, it was something like 10 million marched against the Iraq war and yeah. they did n- nothing and then everyone went, yeah. all right, that's well, it, we tried so much. Yeah, yeah we did yeah. our best. It's like, no, yeah. that, 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 I completely feel that should be the first step. Like again, yeah. I, be- I believe peaceful protest and peaceful resolution should always be the first step. But there's a point where that stops getting results. And and again, that's it. not that's not always to say it has to be violence. There are lobbying options and legal options and so many other yeah. things along the way. I think people panic when you say anything other than just peaceful protest because they're like, oh, so everyone's yeah. going to be lynched and killed. It's like, nah, nah. <laughs> because it's, 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 yeah, but it's, again, it's a very capitalist thing, isn't it, when yeah. we are scared? Because really, when you say anything that alludes to violence, people aren't thinking about loss of life. They're thinking of damage to property. Yeah. So that's all they really care about. Loss of life is not a problem because you're out here killing people in other countries and drone strikes and all of that Monday through to Sunday. So it's not loss of life that's the issue. It's the yeah. fact that your property could in some way be harmed and um when you know like you say fill in this form do that the banality of of bureaucracy that's where they get us again because you get so frustrated with the process that eventually like you give up because you're trying to follow all the channels but the channels are only going to keep taking you around in circles because for you to get your result would in some way um take power as they see away from authority and stuff so i just think it's really really interesting like you say like we vote you in and then somehow you're not doing what we say, but we've just got to allow it. We've just got to have it. We can't say anything back. And you mentioned France. And I think what's interesting with France is that France, as I'm always joking with my friends on Twitter, they've got tear singlet energy. They will tear the singlet of all the government officials. They don't care. <laughs> like they'll see you in the street and they'll slap you. But if, if you're not doing what they want you to do, but we saw that, you know, with the French Revolution, that's been a thing. Like they are willing to tear down those who are yeah. quote unquote in power if they don't feel seen. We don't really have that culture over here. We celebrate Guy Fawkes because his plan flopped. Like his yeah, plan yeah, flopped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was just like, you can celebrate this guy, but yeah. nobody else. You can celebrate him because we hung drawer and quartered him. You can celebrate that. Yeah. So he lets you lot know, don't try it. Remember, remember, don't try your life. That's mad, um, isn't it, actually, that we <laughs> that what we do to celebrate is we burn an yes. effigy of a guy who tried to overthrow the government. Think and, about... And we as the people go, yeah, this is the way. This is our... <laughs> This is our day. This is our moment. So, I mean, I guess this relates to discussing on panels and stuff like that. How do you find the balance between rational logic and raging emotion essential? Because both are fair, both are important and both are needed and both have a time and a place. How do you find that balance? I know on Twitter you sometimes don't, but that's fine. (laughs) That's that's enjoyable. (laughs) But, but I guess in yeah in day to day life and in the professional area like like how do you find that because it's not easy. It isn't, but I think that 
my persona precedes me. Like, Kolechnikov precedes Kolechnikov. Do, do you get me? So mm-hmm. I think that people are already ready for, again, like, that sort of tear singlet energy. But I, that's not necessarily what I'm bringing or I'm bringing it in a manner that one wouldn't expect. And I think that where I'm blessed is that without really having much guidance, I found my way to books. I found my way. This is when I was much younger. I found my way to language and learn how to use language to benefit me. I wasn't born in England. I was born in Nigeria and I came here when I was five. And I remember only speaking Yoruba when I was like out and about. And I remember one day my stepdad, he was driving us somewhere um, in Peckham. And then he was just like, ah, you need to stop. If you're going to, you know, um, be in this country, you need to stop speaking Yoruba. You need to start speaking English and speaking it all the time. And the thing is, I spoke English um, in Nigeria too, obviously, you know, British colony and that. So I, I spoke English when I was in nursery in Nigeria too. But obviously when I'm around family, I feel like, oh, I can speak Yoruba. And he was like, no, 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 you need to be using your English everywhere. And so from when he said that to me at like five, six years old, that stuck. And so I started reading a lot, reading a lot, really trying to understand language and etymology and how things work and how language works so now we cut to today um like almost 35 years later um well 35 years later 30 years later and my language saves me my use of language saves me that I'm able to um absorb information and then like transpose it into a a manner that's accessible to people that wouldn't otherwise be engaged in the conversation because that's what's happening elitism has meant that they're having all of these conversations a lot of us aren't able to penetrate and to be able to give our opinion um and they want it that way but then suddenly when someone's able to say oh actually this is what they've just said how do you feel about that and take that back we see that more conversation is happening online and people feel more confident about saying these things. So in my day to day, that's what I'm bringing forward, a strategy, a logic to how I'm kind of disseminating information. So it appears, obviously, because of my background in um, theatre and um, acting, it appears as a performance, as it should. But artifice serves us you give people something, it looks like a show, but what you're trying to do is get your information or get the information out there and also get the essence out there of disruption, yeah. disobedience. Like, you don't have to just take things because they said that. Like, let's ridicule them. We should definitely be mocking Boris Johnson. We should definitely be mocking Theresa May because Margaret Thatcher didn't get that energy. So the the policies that she came up with, they could just run for a minute. But now we're seeing that because people are able to look at the government and ridicule them, it means that the power isn't the power balance is starting to shift. And, and I really like that for us. I, 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 I love that you give them the angry black woman Trojan horse. Yes, like, yes. like they think they're getting yes. the angry black woman yes. and they, they're getting the, the rational, intelligent, here's my point yes. I'm making. You book me because you think yes. I'm going to be the, the counter argument and, and yes. embarrass myself and be a cliche yes. or whatever else. Yes. But you don't give them that. You, you, no. you Again, that reputation that precedes you at times, you, you then get to show how you built the right yes. to have any kind of reputation. Do, do, yes. do you know what I mean? I love that. Okay. People under people underestimate it. I think that's what it is. Like you say, um, and that's what I, the actual book that I was working on for a minute, I still haven't gotten very far with it, but how black women can reclaim the angry black woman narrative for their own liberation. For so long, we've run away from that narrative and I understand why. It was pushed upon us, even though we have so much to be angry about. And so a lot of black women are going the other way where they want to be respectable. They don't want any drama. They want to show that they're deserving of humanity and actually 
your humanity is inherent in who you are because you exist and you don't have to prove that. So for me, I've gone the other way where I'm on social media being angry, swearing, effing and blinding, because at the end of the day, nobody can fire me from anything. I work for myself yeah. and they a lot of people fail to see just all of the things, the building blocks that had to come into play so I could do the things that I do. But like you say, they'll book me because they're thinking, oh, she's going to come and she's going to be ranting and raging only to be bringing them um, dates and facts and bringing them abstract um, um, manners of considering the subjects that they're talking about that they can't really argue with because they also know that at any point I can reach for that angry black woman narrative and then start cussing everybody out. And then either way, it's going to go viral. What do we do now? Yeah, it's the perfect double-edged sword to be wielding, you know. I can bring Eva. I can switch sides with ease. Um, can we talk a little bit about growing up in Peckham then? Because my family are all yes. Peckham, Streatham, Lewish, and big up the Hornemann Museum. That was that was my spot as a kid. Um, Same. How was it growing up there, I guess, in the 90s and 2000s? Because yeah. South London historically was one of the first places that black communities moved to in the UK and it meant that in the 70s and 80s there was a fair bit of backlash and racism but it did feel 90s and 2000s things were in a better place because you were starting to get the second generations and people like uh, my granddad who worked in a pickle factory with almost exclusively black families so my family were exposed to all the different cultures and and the richness from an early age so I think in the 90s and 2000s, you were starting to get that. It was more embedded. It wasn't this new, scary outsider. But obviously, there, yeah. you know, it wasn't gone. Any racism and issues yeah. weren't gone. But how, like, how was that as a as a time to be growing um, up? It was magical for me, you know. I think about it now and I'm like, rah, I'm going to be 35 in October. What? Like, um, and I talk about being Nigerian. I always say, like, Nigerian. My Nigerianness precedes my Britishness. I, I, I've never felt really invited into British culture. And I guess some people have just made, carved a space for themselves and made something out of it. But I, I think that my observational skills have come from feeling ostracised or feeling like an outsider to be able to yeah. look um, look in. And growing up in Peckham, so coming from Lagos, hot, vibrant, just incredible And then coming over here, coming to England and specifically coming to South London, specifically coming to Peckham, I didn't really feel like I'd left Lagos. It was weird to me to be able to walk down the street on like Rye Lane and just hear people speaking Yoruba just about being able to buy the same foods, being able to buy Gary, being able to buy this, being able to buy that. That was wild to me. And back in, back, back, back in the day, there used to be this suya hot, like, so suya is like a kind of like kebab, like a charcoal grilled um, meat. And you could, there was this like shack called Obalende Suya where you could just buy it and the guys had barbecues out and they'd just be making that. And that was in the nineties. And eventually that shut down um, and there was like a car park, um, car wash behind it that shut down. And then they actually opened a store and the store was like thriving for, for ages. So I, I can, in my mind's eye, see how Peckham kind of changed over time. Now, what gets me is that obviously I still remember the violence. I remember that there was violence. I'm, you know, I'm very mm-hmm. clear on that. I just don't know whether 
Now, this might seem controversial, but I actually feel like the violence was more back then than it is now. I just feel like now it's being reported more because we, yeah. you know, we've got social media, we've got all of these things. Yeah. But it was like everyone, men were dropping every other day. And I went to school on what was known as Frontline. So my primary school was just bang on like Peckham High Street. Uh, so you couldn't miss it. A secondary school, I remember, um, you know, I went to Notre Dame in Elephant and Castle. I remember like having so many friends whose boyfriends had like been killed or this had happened and that had happened. So upon me saying that it was magical in terms of like, I think about all the great times that I had and being able to go play group and, and make all of these friends and like Burgess Park fun fair and all of those things. I still do remember the re- reality of like Damilola Taylor yeah. being killed. Yeah. That really refracted my childhood so there is the magic and then there is then what happened to Damilola Taylor like I can't pass by Peckham Library for some reason it's specifically Peckham Library I can't pass by there without thinking about him and just those those lives you know there are he was what 10 when it happened I think about for instance Stephen Lawrence and that was Elton just like how South was black but that didn't mean that it was necessarily safe for black people yeah i mean i mean it's i spoke to dr adam elliott cooper about this a while back and we discussed Mm. how knife crime and whatnot gets 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 branded and marketed as 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 a black thing but the two biggest areas for for knife crime are south london and glasgow it just happens that the working class in glasgow are white yeah the working class in south london in a lot of those areas are more often than not black so black yeah it's 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 a class problem and a, yes. and a situation problem rather than a a race, a race problem and that's problem, why yeah. it's not again there's not a safe you're you're safe here and, and you you're not safe here you know it is yeah. it's it's a massive issue that i don't know i don't know what the solution is i think we need more and more credible voices yeah. speaking to these kids not 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 government people not like i spoke no, to kano about it when kano was on and there's yeah. Farron and, and different people on instagram who are doing knife amnesties and and yeah. all these things and yeah i think that's that's what it takes as we see with most legal things in the uk we've seen throughout history particularly with dr- drugs for an example yeah. the tightening of the law yeah. doesn't s- solve anything it, no, no. It, it just builds it into a bigger and bigger issue. And... But it also disproportionately affects marginalised communities. Like when yeah. we talk about um, being tougher on crime, we're not really talking about being tougher on crime. We've, we've decided that crime is um, synonymous with non-white people or non-white middle class people because working class white people still get it as well. You know, and so we're looking at that. We're looking at the criminal justice system and the, and the dis- disproportionate sentencing that takes place when we take it and, and look at the policing. We're looking at disproportionate rates of stop and search and things like that. So the in, the inherent criminality that's been kind of inflicted upon what it means to be black or and or South Asian means that when we hear, oh, we're going to put more police in the streets and we're going to be tougher on crime, that means that we're coming for your neck. We're coming for you yeah, specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is worrying to me. But I I love that we have these, gar- uh, like the garden knife amnesties and things like that. But for me, because I'm so into the metaphysical and the, and the esoteric, I feel like it's deep, deeper than that. There has to be a spiritual shift in what we are looking at. And I'm not talking necessarily God, God, God. I'm just talking about young people 
being reminded before society or like, well, these authorities, and I guess in terms of the school system as well, being able to penetrate into their psyche and make them believe that they don't, they're not worthy of anything, Mm. being able to intervene and remind them of their divinity, remind them of their greatness, because a lot of young people are ending up in these situations because of a lack of self-esteem, a lack of thinking that they deserve better we know that psychologically we literally know that like you only do these things if you genuinely believe that that is all you are worth yeah. and what makes them feels like feel like that that's all they're worth again it's their environment if your environment's underfunded you don't have anywhere really to go you don't have anywhere to express yourself you're being looked at with suspicion when you step out your front door your parents are having to work mad hours to provide for you everyone's working from a place of scarcity and a place of lack that is all you're going to perpetuate so that means that there has to be a shifting of reminding them that no you are great beyond belief and yes while we're waiting for our immediate environment to reflect that I still need to remind you of that so you don't make decisions that's actually going to take you off the track of what you deserve um it's the same with my brother you know like one of my brothers he's in prison right now and before that happened he got hooded by the police and that video went viral when I posted it on social media like I find that young people make the decisions that they make when they believe that there is no other way like these are their only options and I send him tarot readings and we talk all the time and things like that. And when we have our conversations, these are the things he says, like, you're the, you, you know, you're the smart one. And so it's like our, our other sibling, like you lot are the smart ones. I didn't, I didn't have that. So what else was I meant to do? So again, we're talking about the overrepresentation of young people, men and boys specifically. I know that, you know, it happens to girls and women as well, but young working class men and boys who have learning differences who it's not picked up and instead it's vilified and they're made to believe that they're disruptive instead of just the fact that they learn differently. They're not given the attention that they need. So therefore we're fueling the school to prison pipeline because they just weren't given the attention that they deserve. And that's why you're finding so many have dyslexia, dyspraxia, all of that in the prison system. And why should that be? How come we know that? And the government doesn't know that. Again, it's about the government that does know that, that right. Cause it's the government who, <laughs> who cut all of the community centres, who cut all the arts funds and all the arts centres in these areas that they're now yeah. saying, we've got this problem that we can't solve. It's like, again, it's because you're trying to you're trying to react to a problem rather than yes. put a solution at the start. And I think that's, that's always, or so often the way, because it's, it's quicker. And, and as, as a general yeah. public, we've got short attention spans. So we want yeah. a quick solution rather than, here's what it's going to take. We're going to have to, you know, do our best and endure yeah. a generation that maybe is already, or a, a certain few years at school yes. or whatever that's already lost. Yes. And we're going to have to start preparing the youth and the next yes. people that are coming through rather than go, right, well, we're just going to crack down harder and harder. But uh, you, you mentioned tarot and you mentioned your brother there. So we need to talk about your podcast because <laughs> podcasts are white as fuck and have been white as fuck for a minute. Um, so particularly when you started. And, and when we first spoke, it was for Pod Bible yes. Magazine and we discussed it yes. a little bit then. So what made you start podcasting? Because it was a thing that was getting to me for a, a minute. It's why yeah. I've made sure I've had Kano and Dizzy and Getz and Wretch and... And, mm. and Patrice Couleurs and Spike Lee and all these different people on because it felt like this podcast boom was happening, but I'd look at the charts and it's either a, fire, mm. a photo of one white guy or two white guys or sometimes three <laughs> white guys. 
<laughs> so what made you jump into podcasting and how do you think it's doing in spreading in 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 in, in the black community i guess i got into podcasting because you know i love a space where i can mouth off like and you just you create the app and I'm gonna be there. Um yeah. and so <laughs> and so um when I now looked at Twitter, I wrote one thread about Muhammad Ali and when he died, people talking about oh, you know, he's transcended race, he was so wonderful, he was so excellent, he transcended race, and it really started to fuck me off because I was just like, why does why is it that he's only palatable to the white mainstream now that he's dead? So, you know, one, um, and he definitely, they liked him more as he got older and he didn't appear so powerful. Yeah. But also that now that he's um, passed away, then it's like, oh, yeah, he transcended race. Why does he have to transcend race? Why isn't blackness enough for him to exist within? Unless you are therefore admitting that the racialization of blackness and whiteness is to serve a power structure. And so therefore you're saying that he was so excellent that you let him have a little day out a field day out of blackness um, because he was well-behaved or whatever. So I wrote this whole thread and how that kind of um, rhetoric then means that people like Kanye become disillusioned because they also believe that they can transcend race by who they marry or how great that their music is and how well they do. And that they need to transcend race. Right, and that they need to, right. And so because then black in blackness is then this prison that no one really wants to stay within. And he then comes on Twitter to have a rant about the fact that he thought he'd done all of these things, but there are still certain places within society that he does not have access to. Yet he thought that he'd done everything that he needed to do. That is very telling. That is mm. very telling because it's not just Kanye that does that. Loads of people are doing that. Man, woman, cat, dog. Loads of people are doing that, trying to find a way to um, make it into these um, spaces because they believe that somehow they can transcend race. And I thought that that was a fire thread, went back to go and look for it one day and it disappeared. I don't know where it went. And so I just thought to myself, that's how easy it is for Twitter to just take my shit down. Yeah. Just take it down. So I have to have a um, a platform where I can share my views, not be limited to however many characters or have to do a thread and then have to go through typos. And then withstand people misconstruing what I've said. So tone um, is a know. powerful thing, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? When it's not there, man. So I thought, okay, everyone keeps suggesting, why don't you start a podcast? So why don't I? Because I've been a guest on other people's podcasts and it looked really cool. I just didn't feel like I had the space to be committed to it long term. Meanwhile, here I am. Um, and yeah, that's what got me um, started. And I think that it has really made a shift for black people all around the world. I'm always surprised when I look at the analytics and, you know, the insights and I see where people um, are listening and getting all those emails back from people that before my podcast came along, they didn't know that they were allowed to say certain things. So while I don't, I don't have the power to give them permission, they certainly found permission to be who they need to be from the podcast. Even having tarot in there, that was a big step because I know like a lot of black people don't want to talk about um, anything that's not the Abrahamic religions because it's seen as demonic or things like that. Mm. And I needed to push the boundary in that way. I needed to open us up more to the fact that you have Christianity. I was raised in a Christian household, but let's talk about the fact that due to the way that white supremacist patriarchy has worked, you now believe that the most supreme being in the universe, one is male and two is a white male, wherever you can argue up and down if you want to, but that's literally what you believe because we've seen it and how it's conveyed in art 
So there has to be a breaking away from that. There has to be a breaking away from gendering divinity and also racialising divinity. And that's what tarot provides for me and lets me kind of share that truth. So people have found permission in it, even though, you know, I didn't set out to do that, but also become more outspoken. I'm seeing lots more people speaking in my kind of style now. And I like that. I love it. And, and speaking of, of, of speaking, I want to kind of just touch quickly on you've referenced several times a, a white supremacist patriarchy and that those mm. are words that scare a lot of people. And the argument yeah. I always make is, look, it's undeniable that there yeah. has been a patriarchy. All you need to look at is like adverts from the 70s. Like, like yeah. That's literally all you have to do. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing. It's really condescending. Equally... Yeah. Same with white supremacy. You can look at adverts from the 70s. You can even look at laws from the Mm. 70s and 80s. Therefore, however prevalent you believe it is, it's undeniable that the systems that we're currently under are still influenced in some way by those white supremacists and patriarchic industries. So they do exist. And again, I think people, again, they love to live in absolutes. They're like, the patriarchy, but my wife's got a good job. It's like, cool. Yeah. Good. That's wicked. That's the, yeah. that's great. I'd like congratulations yeah. to her. But that doesn't mean that the system and it's it's exactly the same as you were saying about Kanye there, who was feeling he'd done enough to transcend race, then found out he didn't, and then <laughs> wanted to do something about race. It's like yeah. right, so if you personally had escaped it and those problems were still there, you'd yes. be cool with them. Yes. And that's not yes, how it should exactly it, it should be. Any leftover influence of white supremacy and the patriarchy leftover influence or leftover power again it should be addressed regardless of if you're doing well i'm doing all right so it doesn't matter no no it doesn't pull yourself up by the bootstraps like you're you're you haven't made it because you haven't changed your mindset like you know kane day andrews his book about the new empire i think it's fantastic for breaking down just how everything in terms of foundation everything that we've built in the western world or the global north whatever they want to call it has been because of white supremacist patriarchy we're not saying that slave trades didn't come before that we know that there was the arab slave trade we knew all of these things that predated the this specific type of slavery at that then led to all of these things but um We've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this and how it went, um, you know, and how it was spread out and stuff. And, you know, I always think of Haiti. I always think of Haiti. I think about, quote unquote, third world debt. I think about international aid. I think about all of these things that appear to be altruistic in nature, but actually they are just further perpetuating a white supremacist, um, a patriarchal ideal. Because why would we need international aid if, these um, countries that were formerly colonized didn't owe you imaginary money for saying that they want their freedom. Yeah. Why do they have to ask for their freedom back? Like we shouldn't have been taken in the first place. So I think about that. I think about Haiti, how people for some reason just hate on Haiti, like just it's wild, but then you break it down that they had one of the most successful revolutions when it came to, you know, the um, transatlantic slave trade, um, and France is still vexed. France mm. is still vexed over it. And so those things kind of show me that 
when we dare to really, really look, we see how nothing has really changed. And you can say like, oh, we'll vote in these people and those things will change. But if the constitutions upon which that they have been voted in, you know, into these um, positions of power are inherently anti-black, then no matter what they do, they still have to answer to the constitution that was created. So it's the same with um, the UK. And I brought it up when I did that BBC One Extra George Floyd remembrance when I was speaking to one of the heads of police. And, you know, he was saying all these wonderful things that sounded really cute. But at the end of the day, how many people were arrested during lockdown and the proportion of them? How many of them were black? Pretty much most of them. Mm. So how is it that even during lockdown, you're still managing to only get black people? How? Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Uh, several th- things you said there that it's amazing how really serious, heavy, and horrible things become f- factoids so quickly, particularly in the social media world, and particularly as we said, without tone tr- translated, like people saying, "Oh, but there was slavery before black people." It's like <laughs> cool. All right, that that doesn't change. So it. Like, that, makes I, it be- I, that makes it better. I, I literally saw it yesterday when someone. Had the, a, a Republican in America had said that the biggest loss of the pandemic is people have chosen to give away their freedom, and loads of people came back and said, "No, I think the biggest loss is the <laughs> six hundred thousand people that have died in America." Wow! And I saw a response to that. Someone said, two hundred thousand of them were under Biden, though." All right, uh, cool. Uh, okay, then. Fuck him too. <laughs> fuck Trump and fuck Biden. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be this. It doesn't change anything. Just because you're speaking against the system, it doesn't mean you're these people are there feeling well you're having a go at trump well how about yeah. it's like, no all of them i don't i don't all like of them, any of you of how it. about that it doesn't I think, work I think, yeah but it's yeah. These, these weird added bits of tone so i guess how have you found the transition you spoke about the one extra thing i mean we can talk about the women's hour incident as yeah. as well but how have you found the transition to more mainstream media because you've found your audience Mm. by having an untethered tongue as such. You've had that freedom and you've had the freedom to say what you want. But as we discussed earlier, that's not always going to work or read well in a limited time. Here's here's when you're on this show, you've got two minutes. Rather than I've got as long as I want, I'll get this across. How have you found that that transition? Um, It's been interesting because some, you know, I, I... that if you look on iPlayer, there's the BBC One Extra thing and then there's the Work It, which is like a workout series that I did in my capacity as a personal trainer. So like there are things that I've had to do where I had to kind of put, not necessarily put me to the side, but just know that they will find me. You can't miss me. So all I need to do really, all I need to do really is go onto your show, say what I need to say in these five minute kind of time slot but direct them to where the real things are i think it's about being subversive not every day go and scream and shout on the mainstream platform but just say the things that need to be said and i always make sure to say when especially when i'm on like the news or things like that to smile when i'm saying all of the things or serve a cute outfit all of these things are to form a juxtaposition to what people want to do in their mind which is to create like we say the angry black woman narrative so if i can start to kind of like frustrate that process for them well I want to say she's angry, but she's smiling. 
I'm going to say she's angry, but she's wearing a blue sequin one shoulder dress. How do I, how do I do this? <laughs> so doing all of that, but making sure that at the bottom it says like host of Say Your Mind podcast, because I'm trying to drive them to the podcast where they can actually hear what needs to be said. Because again, I know that due to editorial guidelines, there are only so many things that someone can say on these um, platforms. I mean, look at diversity. They're not even into, you know, politics or race or anything like that. And they did one dance routine and got thousands and thousands of complaints. They didn't really even speak. They yes. just danced. Yes. And that was enough to infuriate people. And I always have to think about my safety as a hyper-visible black woman in the UK. You know, it's, it's not hyperbole to say, like, you've got Diane Abbott, you've got Dawn Butler, you've got, you know, these different MPs, and then you've got some, I guess, a few black um, female celebrities, and then you've got me. And then, you know, the black celebrities maybe aren't saying that much because they're trying to protect, you know, their careers for the most part. So that means that after the MPs, you've got me. Yeah. So if you're not if you're, if you're not going to direct your anger or your vitriol towards them, it's me that you're coming for next. So I always try to kind of manage what I'm saying in these places where there's no context for who I am, what I do, you know, but making sure that I at least use that kind of airtime to say enough and just kind of move from there. But I'm not really interested in it. I think that between us and the listeners, I don't really see me being able to go any further in the UK. Like, where would I, what, what would I do now? What, what, what do I, I'm not going to get um, a, a, you know, a permanent spot on TV. They'll lose their license immediately. So, <laughs> So where do where do I go? What do I do? You know, yeah. so it can only really be the um you know things like podcasts and doing things um of my own volition. Uh, can I I dig the, down into one thing you said there we, about looking out for your own safety because it, it, it is yeah. a real thing. This might sound re- weird, but we're currently in the European Football Championship, yeah. um, and that means a lot more. Union Jacks and and George's yeah. cr- cr- cross flying about, and again, I think it's it's obviously inaccurate to say everyone that flies a George's flag is a racist. <laughs> it's, it's it's that thing of of not everyone that yes. voted for Brexit is racist, but every racist voted what? for Brexit, and yeah. it's a similar thing yeah. there. Not everyone that flies a George's flag is racist, obviously, but most yeah. racists will be flying a George's flag. So yes. I wanted to g- genuinely ask if any of that is triggering or makes you feel unsafe around a time like this because again the it's weird because it's it's a symbol of those who you may feel th- threatened by yeah. or may have been shouted at by or whatever else in yeah. these different situations but it's not necessarily being used in that way it's this weird time where it's about yes, a it's lot very... like, 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 how is that does it change the atmosphere for you or is it just not a thing I feel like you just have to kind of err on the side of caution, really, for me, because like you say, I don't know. I, you know, I wouldn't know the difference. All yeah. I see is a flag, right? And yeah. and that flag has been um con- a constant, whether when I was living in Peckham to when I moved to Bermondsey, like the flag has been a constant. So I can't really risk like, oh, don't know which way this one's going to go. Like, yeah. I've, you know, you just got to, you know, be safe. But at the same time, I, I just feel like people are just happy to be outside and racism is going to racism whether there's a flag there or not you know like I I listen to some of these um you know football fans and like the way the disparaging way that that they speak about black football players I saw what happened with Raheem Sterling what's Mm -hmm. been happening with Marcus Rashford even before that with Lukaku and the songs that they would be singing like you're a fan of that you are a supporter of this team, of this club that this guy plays for, and you're singing about his mum washing an elephant. Like, it's so 
deeply embedded within the culture of football for a large part of it that I think you kind of get used to it. It sounds really fucked, but you just kind of get used to it. So during this time, I don't necessarily feel more unsafe. I just feel the same level of vigilance that I have to have every single day. Even when I go running, I'm I'm very careful about my roots, not posting my roots. I mean, that's a lesson for all um, um women, really. But I'm, I've got to be so much more aware now this is not when I had 25k followers and I could just kind of like say what I want and bounce like I know that I have more influence than I realize so I just have to be careful of that but no it's not it's not the flag flag shaggers that scare me no it's definitely not them it's it's more governmental that's what I would be paying attention to everything else I don't I don't I just think people are just glad to be outside after the pandemic so I've just got to let them have their fun I agree. I agree. You spoke um, earlier of, 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 again, you go on, on some of these panels and it will point people in a certain direction. Now, one of the things I love about you is you refuse to be big categorized. You've got, you've got many areas and it, and it makes, again, it's, it's something I connect to. I took the name Scroobius Pip because that is a creature that can't be, be, be put into a category because yes. I wanted to do acting and rapping and podcasting and all this other shit. Yeah. Um, and you obviously you you you're a, a, a known as a social commentator and a podcaster, but we touched upon at the start. You, you've also got Kolechnikov Fitness, which is a yeah. dance and twerk studio, and it, yeah. it came to mind then because if people do see you on a show, they might go, "Oh, look up her social media," and if they go on yeah. tw- on Twitter, they'll find a lot of here's the uncensored views yes they go on instagram it's mainly running in your twerk studio so so, again it's 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 such like they're not gonna know like have i found the right person is this what i was looking for is so yes (laughs) like how important is that to you to represent and and present like all sides of you and 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 a complete character rather than here's my political stance in every yeah on every platform or in every moment I think that's that's it like as you said like I think that that hits the nail on the head like the for me the real resistance is appearing in the world as holy as I can there'll always be you know and we're saying all of that but that's really literally just maybe like five percent of my life the rest of it I keep to myself like I'm incredibly private as a person and I always have been so there was this whole thing when you know around 2018 when people like oh my god her partner's white how dare she hide it from us didn't hide it it was there right it was just right there for you to see the whole time you just chose not to see it so that's your personal problem but um yeah, I generally am a private person, but I just think that for me, the resistance, the liberation comes from appearing in the world as holy as I am. And and what that does for people is that it forces a shift within themselves. Like, why are you struggling to be able to accept and embrace all of these aspects of me? And that's not to say that lots of people struggle, but there are those people who are like, well, how is it that you do this? And then you also do that because I'm one person that is capable of doing all of those things. I think being multifaceted is important to remind people that one, what, first and foremost, blackness is not a monolith and also black womanhood is not a monolith. So mm. I'll be running today and then I'll post, I don't know, a picture of whatever tomorrow. But in my stories, in my stories is where I really thrive because 
you know, most things are there for like the 24 hours. And so you see like lots of people will then go to my stories because that's when I'm posting like this is happening politically and this is happening. The grid is just the grid. I don't give a damn really. I know I need to keep posting to just keep people engaging. And then you've got the random videos that go viral, but really the Instagram stories, that's where I'm kind of like getting my um, information across because you know, the people that have gone to watch um, that, you can also see them unless they're using burner accounts, you can also see them. So you yeah. know who's engaging you know who's with that. And that matters, you know, yeah. I need to know, not just the mindless likes, but the people who are watching the stories and really understanding what's going on. But, but it took me a long time to get to this point. As someone that had a childhood of um, sexual abuse when I came to the UK and stuff, I didn't speak for a really long time. I was very, very moody. I didn't express myself. I always felt like tainted or tarnished in some way and just remember the world feeling so bleak and grey. It's only really around the age of like 17 that that started to shift for me that I I realised I needed to speak about my experiences more. But it really wasn't until maybe about the age of 22, 23 that I remember being on a bus and I just thought, wow, it just feels so horrible to exist inside me. And then it was that moment of like, well, who is the me that is existing here? And so like took myself to therapy and then started finding a way to you bring my voice back out. Not even necessarily find my voice, but just let it, you know, come back out and to address all of the pain and also to address the anger that was at the surface of all of the pain. And that's what's made me who I am now or allowed me to do these things because people see me as fearless or like really, really confident. But really what's happened is that all the shame that I was shrouded in, I've just decided to take it off. And then you just see so much more of a person when you can kind of like dust all of those things away. Yeah. And it's an ongoing process because random things will trigger you like random things. And motherhood has really done that to me where you just get these. Um, I mean, people have intrusive thoughts, definitely. But then as somebody that's experienced sexual trauma, the intrusive thoughts about, that you fear for anything happening to your child is on a whole other level. And being aware enough, being conscious enough to say, like, that is not my reality now. I am safe now. My child is safe now. I have the resources in place and things in place that I will be able to ensure this. And, you know, anything that comes up for me, I'll be able to handle it like I've handled everything before. I wouldn't be here if there hadn't been so many times when I thought that I wouldn't be here. And so that's why I keep doing it. And as we say, like the untethered tongue, like if I don't speak, I might as well have just died all the other times then, you know? It's it's fascinating how things, how as our lives progress, it changes the incidents of the past, our perspectives Mm. on them and things like that. I think it's incredibly powerful. And it's, again, just something I relate to massively of I'm seen as incredibly open, but... It's similar. I'm incredibly private, but I choose w- 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 when to be open and what yeah. to let people in with. And things like like one of the first things I, r- I read of yours was, or both were in 2008, it was the yeah. finding out that your partner is white as if it's some yeah. big spoiler. And <laughs> yeah. going through a miscarriage on, yeah. on during the London ma- Marathon. And Fun, yeah. these horrendous things can't be erased but it mm. feels like the shadow of them can change sh- shape when there's suddenly, yes. for example, the, the light of motherhood now over yes. something like that. The yes. light of that is not going to remove the shadow of, of what you went through there, but the shape of it is going to change and it's going to, yeah. it's going to have a different, it's going to have been a part on a journey that you didn't know it was part of, if you know what Definitely. I mean. And that's, I find that stuff 
fascinating. But I mean, to start to wrap things up, speaking of of choosing to be, be open about stuff, how important was it for you to have your brother on your podcast and to, <laughs> and to welcome that kind of of relationship and that kind of back and forth, someone there that can speak as openly to you as you would be speaking on your own and all that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. how's that been to no, have family the- involved? It's been the best experience ever. Like now he's done as of, you know, this Monday gone, like it's been the best experience ever. Like I always say like my, my, both of my brothers, they are the highlights of my life, but my baby brother, Sadiq, like he, I feel like I raised him. So it's almost in some ways it also feels like having my son on, on the show, on the, on the podcast, because He's so incredible and he's learned so many things, not just from me, but from going out into the world and discovering them himself. And I look at him and I just feel so proud and I feel hopeful because there is so much conversation that we have about black um, manhood and, you know, the ways in which historically black manhood has been refracted from the violences that they've experienced and finding their way back to healing, finding their way back to themselves. And then I see my brother and I see that, I see that healing. I see that what's possible for um, other black men. And he just makes me so proud. Like I had a hand in that, but at the same time, he's done a lot of these things himself. And so naturally he brings out my softer side. I think that like we say, like when you choose the information that you give to people, I can come across as quite serious a lot of the time. And so for the first time, I think that people got more of an insight into my tenderness and to actually see that in my day to day, I'm really rather like laid back. Again, you know, like I said earlier, like Kolechnikov being that persona is that I can step into that and I can step back out. Like I'll say what I need to say. I know that I can back my chat if I ever, you know, should I ever need to, I definitely can back my chat. But at the same time, I know that I've done what I need to do now and I can just go retreat into my day to day life of softness, of tenderness, of joy. And he's part of that. So being able to bring that into a podcast that is rather heavy in terms of subject matter. But I just feel like if I'm not going to do it, who the fuck's going to do it? Like, who's yeah. going to who's going to talk about it? Yeah. So having him has been great. He's mad guesses when it comes to um, music and um, just that generational difference as well. Like there's a nine year age gap between us. So having the, that kind of interaction as well, just to bring a bit of joy to people's lives. Um, but again, I was very cautious of the fact that I don't want him to then start getting random people um, writing crap about him. But no, that's not happened because he still he doesn't after being on a podcast, he still doesn't share anything about himself. So it worked. And my partner messaged me ex- excitedly saying, you've got to a listen t- 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 to Sadiq's best bits this week. And I've, I've not I've not caught up yet. <laughs> But part of it is because of the random music guesses because I'm a music nerd and I get so annoyed when my partner's going, is this or gets gets things wrong? I'm like, no, no, that's not right. So, yeah, I look forward to to checking that out. Well, I mean, I'll wrap things up, but I guess I just want to ask, what is ahead? We kind of spoke about how there is a perceived kind of limit on what you can do in mainstream media. I still want to hear those two questions that you want to ask Boris Johnson. <laughs> I want him to give you that moment and put you in that room. I saw you tweeting about it and it, but yeah, what is the plan? Like, like yeah, how are things looking going forward? Ah, oh, this is the thing that I like pray about every morning. Like I, I've gotten to the point now where I don't, 
I don't know. I don't expect. I ju- but I just know what I want to feel. I want to feel security. I want to feel peace. I want to feel safety. So whether that's like working towards getting a, a bigger home or, you know, those sorts of things that the, the, my focus is shifting to like the day to day. And that's no surprise because astrologically I'm moving into my 12th house year, which is a year of like subconscious and the ways that we kind of hold ourselves prisoner in our own lives so I know that there's going to be major shifts for me there so not really things that are happening outwardly but things that need to happen inwardly for me to be able to maybe step into new roles within the community and within society I'll do I'll keep doing tarot you know I do my one-to-one tarot readings I'll keep doing that when I have the chance but ultimately I think that this is my time to actually get to act like I see more like uh, casting uh, things coming through in terms of sending self tapes in and stuff. I just want to book a fire job, movie wise or series wise, that lets me actually show, you know, my actual skills. Because sometimes people forget that first and foremost, I'm an actor. Yeah. Not everything else I'm doing complements that. But you know, I just I want to I want to focus on that for a bit. I, 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 I worry about that at times myself. Is I'm I'm an actor. I I, yeah. I, I do my work, but because the podcast has got so successful and big, I'm like, I, I genuinely, it annoys people at times, the amount of times I'll remind the listener that I'm an actor, because I'm worried <laughs> that some casting directors are listening and could be thinking, oh, this is a podcast. Like, no, 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 no. I'm, Same. I'm available. Same. I'm still I'm still that guy. So, yeah, I love that. Well, it's, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. People can listen to... Um, S-Y-M, Say Your Mind, known yeah. by some as Suck Your Mum, um, and yeah, and 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 keep up to date. As said on on socials, you're on tw- on tw- Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, I recommend they there. keep Election up with everything. Off. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. This has been incredible. It's been a joy. I'm glad we got to do it. And uh, yes. yeah, I look forward to talking to you again soon. You too. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Kalechi. I hope you enjoyed that. As mentioned, if this is your first time tuning in, have a browse through the back catalogue. Either search Distraction Pieces and then the guests that you're after, or just go on Distraction Pieces and have a good scroll through. If you go on my social media page, Scroobius Pipio on Instagram, I've got each year's lineups as... um, story highlights so that's a good way to just have a bit of a a scroll through and see who who might catch your eye but yeah i'll be back next week as ever uh, with more wonderful chat on the distraction pieces podcast so until then stay safe and stay sane ta-ta